Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody. I'm James Putzel, and I'm the director of the Crisis States Research Center. We're really honored to have Jonathan Steele with us tonight. The war in Iraq may well go down in history as one of the greatest misadventures and strategic blunders of our time. Jonathan Steele has written a book, Defeat, Why They, Why they Lost Iraq. Um, it's on sale tonight for 10 pounds, I gather, from the publisher. Half price is that? So I'm sure everybody's going to gobble up the, um, the copies that are outside. This book provides a profound analysis of the decision-making processes and the myopia that led leaders in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and their allies to this defeat in Iraq. I understand the book coming out on the anniversary of the invasion in the U.S. has a slightly different title, Defeat, Why, Britain, Why the U.S. and Britain Lost Iraq. Jonathan is senior foreign correspondent and in-house columnist on international affairs for The Guardian. He was educated at Cambridge, and he had his MA in economics from Yale University in New Haven in, in the United States. He joined The Guardian back in 1965, and he was Washington bureau chief from 1975 to 79. As chief foreign correspondent in the 1980s, he covered the wars in El Salvador and Nicaragua uh, and in Afghanistan, as well as the struggles for majority rule in Zimbabwe and in South Africa. It was during this period I first met Jonathan, um, sort of, I think we were slogging along in the floods in Metro Manila, where he was uh, documenting and looking at charting the course of the democratic transition in the Philippines. He went on in, in, in 1989, February 1989, to be the only Western reporter who flew into Kabul uh, on the day that the last Soviet soldier left Afghanistan, and all Western diplomats were fleeing the country in fear of a bloodbath. And Jonathan's analytical abilities were proven then because the Najibullah regime stayed around for another three years. He's a fluent Russian speaker, and he was with the Guardian's Moscow um, Bureau as chief from 1988 to 1994. He was covering Gorbachev's reforms at the time and the fall of the Communist Party and the collapse of the Soviet Union. He won the London Press Club's Scoop of the Year Award for being the only English language reporter to reach the president's uh, um, dacha in the Crimea during the August 1991 coup. We were all waiting in anticipation during those days for your dispatches from, from the Soviet Union or what used to be the Soviet Union. He was t he's twice won the International Reporter of the Year um, uh, title in the British Press Awards, uh, which, which are the UK equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. He won Amnesty International's Reporter of the Year Award in 1998 for his coverage of ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. In that year, he also won, the, I mean, the awards are too many to list them all, the James Cameron Award for work that combined moral vision and professional integrity. And in 2006, he won the Martha Gellhorn Award for the, quote, consistently high standard of his reporting over a number of years. 
Jonathan is no stranger to the LSC. Since the Crisis State Center was formed, we've, we've invited him here to ha engage in debates about media freedom in post-war states, to engage in debates over the nature of the war on terror, and he's always welcome here for, for his insights, his analytical skills that put a lot of us academics to, to shame. So tonight he's going to talk to us about Iraq, the way out. Thank you. This is a very wide-angle room. I will have to swivel like mad to try and give a bit of eye contact to everybody. But thank you very much, James, for that extraordinarily generous introduction. Um, and thank you all for coming. What I want to do this evening is to outline briefly why Iraq is in such deep crisis and explain why the US-led occupation has failed. And finally, to sketch out how I think the country's dire situation can be alleviated, if not resolved. I've been to Iraq on eight different occasions since the invasion of March 2003. Each time I stayed for an average of about a month in Baghdad, Basra, and most recently in Kurdistan and the north. And on each occasion, I found the security situation worse. On each occasion, at least in the Arab parts of Iraq, I found massive dissatisfaction with the performance of the Americans and the British. So why has it gone so wrong? The vast majority of Iraqis were delighted, of course, to see Saddam Hussein toppled. Why then has their liberation produced so much dissent and so much instability? Over the last five years, dozens of books have appeared which try to answer these questions. Some written by other journalists, including many of my colleagues and friends. Some by diplomats and former officials of the occupation, the so-called Coalition Provisional Authority, the CPA. So you may well wonder how anyone could find anything new to say on this issue. And I must admit that while I was writing this book, I asked myself the same question. But I suppose I felt provoked to go on and actually write it, and to call it in no uncertain terms defeat, by an increasing sense of alarm. I don't primarily mean alarm at what was going on in Iraq, although the human tragedy there is colossal. And Iraq is rightly described as the world's biggest humanitarian catastrophe. My specific sense of alarm arose from what I felt was happening here in Britain. As time has gone on since the invasion, the conventional wisdom, a kind of orthodox narrative, has got stronger and stronger. And it seemed to me not only wrong, but extremely dangerous. If Britain was to avoid repeating the disaster of Iraq, the right lessons needed to be drawn. So this book is a deliberate challenge to the conventional wisdom. Now you all know the arguments, but let me very quickly rehearse the main two. Argument number one is that the US went into Iraq without a plan. Argument number two is that it then made a series of stupid blunders like disbanding the old Iraqi National Army and dissolving the Ba'ath Party. And the point is encapsulated in the titles and subtitles of two recent books. One of them is subtitled, Winning the War but Losing the Peace. Another is called Squandered Victory. And more recently, here in Britain, there was a TV program, which many of you may have watched, called No Plan, No Peace. 
Now, of course, I'm not denying that the CPA made a series of major mistakes which helped to compound Iraqi anger, disappointment, and opposition. But it's important to analyze the no plan, no peace argument carefully. Its central assumption is that there could have been a way to have a successful occupation. If only it had been more sensitive, more efficient, better managed, it would have worked out all right. But just stop and think for a moment. Do people really believe that a Western army can successfully maintain an open-ended occupation of an Arab country in the 21st century and not face mounting opposition? I mean, all occupations are inherently unpopular. People don't like seeing foreign tanks on their streets. They don't like seeing foreign troops in their midst. And of course, there's been a century-long history of Anglo-American intervention in the Middle East, and Iraqis were bound to treat a new intervention and a new occupation with great suspicion. Yet most American and British officials barely accepted this or acknowledged it. The first opinion poll conducted after the invasion found that from the very first day, more Iraqis saw it as an occupation than as a liberation. This was true in Basra as well as in Baghdad. But when resistance began, American and British officials were reluctant to admit it was coming from Iraqis. They preferred to believe it was largely orchestrated by foreigners. I remember attending a briefing for British journalists in the embassy in June 2004, led by Lieutenant General John McCall, who at that time was Deputy Commander of Multinational Forces and the most senior British officer in the occupation. We were startled by what we heard. There was a PowerPoint presentation, and an officer referred to problem people who he just described as AIF, an acronym, AIF. So one of us asked, uh, what, what, what does it stand for? And the officer said, well, it stands for anti-Iraqi forces. So there was a little bit of an intake of breath among us. And uh, one of us said, well, wouldn't it be better to call them anti-coalition forces, maybe, or anti-government forces? I mean, surely the resistance is Iraqi. How can they be anti-Iraqi? So General McCall at that point jumped in and tried to smooth over the embarrassment by telling us that the acronym was not a British invention or exclusive to today's briefing. It was standard usage in the coalition. We wondered whether this didn't make it rather worse. I mean, if the coalition didn't even start by accepting that many Iraqis saw legitimate reasons for resistance, how could the Americans and British ever win people's hearts and minds? News photographers often took pictures of Iraqis dancing in delight after U.S. Humvees were struck by bombs and set on fire. But it wasn't until December 2006 that a high-level public document, the Iraq Study Group report, often known as the Baker-Hamilton Report, mentioned the uncomfortable fact that 61% of Iraqis approved of attacks on U.S. forces. Now, how could this ignorance happen? One reason was that Paul Bremer, the head of the CPA, the first sort of American overlord in post-invasion Iraq, started with the wrong template. He and most other officials in the Bush administration took as their model the open-ended American occupations of Japan and Germany in 1945, which of course met no resistance. But the historical circumstances were quite different. 
And in the Japanese case, the Americans chose to maintain the emperor in office as a symbol of national dignity and continuity. And this clearly soothed Japanese pride. Iraq was a quite separate case, yet Bremer thought Japan was relevant. And in his memoirs, which he wrote about a year after leaving Iraq, he still hadn't got it. He spelt out unambiguously in his memoirs, quotes, we had to build a success story here that like Germany and Japan still looked good after 50 years, unquote. He and his colleagues almost seemed to forget that Iraq was in the Middle East. They didn't seem to realize that they were treading on old colonial ground. Most Iraqis were delighted to be rid of Saddam, as I've said, but like other reporters who were in Baghdad in those first days of the occupation, we saw how the mood quickly changed. Iraqis wanted to know when the Americans were leaving, why they stayed around once Saddam was gone, and it became clear that he had no weapons of mass destruction. And Iraqis began to suspect that the American project was imperial. Its goal must be to control Iraqi oil and use the country as a strategic base. Yet most CPA officials never spoke to a cross-section of Iraqis. Hunkered down in the green zone in Baghdad or the mini-green zones in the various provincial capitals, they mainly talked to Iraqis who had an interest in being nice to the CPA. These were people who wanted CPA money to pay their own salaries or give them grants to finance civil society projects. They were not the sort of people who would tell the CPA to its face that they didn't like the occupation. But as journalists living outside the green zone and traveling in those early months freely throughout the country, long before there was any concern about being kidnapped, we heard a much broader range of Iraqi views. Now, none of this Iraqi alienation need to have happened if the Americans had, if the Americans had left Iraq quickly, but of course they didn't. So the biggest US blunder was not dissolving the Iraqi army. It was to maintain an open-ended occupation with no date for withdrawal. Let me just quote Kanan Makia, an influential Iraqi exile whose book about Saddam's atrocities called The Republic of Fear had huge influence on the neocons in Washington and he was invited to the White House. He was a passionate advocate of invasion. But after much agonizing in the years since the occupation began, he recently came out with the view, and I quote, the first and the biggest American error was the idea of going for an occupation. If the US and British government's most controversial pre-war decision was to go to war after ignoring the will of the UN Security Council, their behavior after the invasion was just as badly flawed Instead of handing Iraq to United Nations peacekeepers, or better still to Iraqis themselves, to choose their own government, George Bush and Tony Blair persuaded the Security Council in May 2003 to adopt Resolution 1483 to authorize a prolonged occupation by the invading powers. And sadly by then, the war's strongest initial opponents, France, Germany, and Russia, seemed exhausted by their pre-invasion battles with Washington. There was also, of course, relief that Saddam had been toppled with such relative speed. So the anti-invasion Troika, France, Germany, Russia, had little stomach to go on opposing Bush. Beyond the important limit of refusing to contribute their own troops 
to the quagmire into which they rightly expected the so-called multinational force was bound to sink. Resolution 1483 did give the UN a role. It was very much as a junior partner to the coalition. The UN was described as being in Iraq only to facilitate, encourage, promote, help, but never to decide. <coughs> the UN's first representative in Baghdad, Sergio Vieira de Mello, understood Iraqi attitudes much better than most CPA officials. He made a point of meeting a wide cross-section of civil society as soon as he arrived in Baghdad in June 2003. He always drew attention in public to the hardships which a decade of sanctions had imposed on Iraq. A large part of the Americans' unpopularity in Iraq was caused by these sanctions, which Iraqis rightly blamed the US and Britain for imposing. Bremer never mentioned sanctions, hardly mentioned at all in his book. De Mello, however, saw his priority as helping Iraqis recover their independence. Only if Iraqis began to feel that the occupation of their country was coming to a speedy end would there be a reduction in the sense of humiliation which was creating the resistance, he always argued. I'd known de Mello from Kosovo and East Timor, and during the two months he was in Iraq before he was killed, I saw him for two long talks. He told me then in no uncertain terms that as long as the occupation continued, Iraqis would go on condoning rather than condemning attacks on the Americans. The second time we spoke was just after Saddam's two sons, Uday and Kusai, had been killed. The Americans were over the moon. They thought the resistance would now collapse. But de Mello rightly predicted that it would make no difference to the resistance because it went far beyond the former Ba'athists. <coughs> the Americans always claimed they had to remain in Iraq in order to defeat the resistance, but of course this was putting the cart before the horse. The Americans were not in Iraq because of the resistance. The resistance was there because of the Americans. <coughs> I saw that in Fallujah less than three weeks after the statue of Saddam was toppled in Baghdad. The proud, largely Sunni city had liberated itself. The Ba'athists had gone to ground, the old mayor had been expelled, and local imams and tribal sheikhs had elected a new man to take his place. The police force was beginning to resume its duties. Suddenly, American troops arrived, the U.S. 82nd Airborne Division. They set up a heavily fortified guard post next to the mayor's office. They mounted roadblocks, they stopped traffic, they checked people's papers and they took over a local school as a barracks. One evening, still in April 2003 this is, a crowd gathered outside the school demanding the Americans should leave the school. They wanted their kids to go back. Of course, schools had all been closed during the, the bombing campaign, and people wanted the kids to resume studies. <coughs> now, what actually happened next in the next few minutes after the demonstration reached the school is still contested. The Americans claimed that some people in the crowd started firing and they, thought they were therefore compelled to return fire. But local eyewitnesses to whom I and other reporters spoke the following morning say the Americans overreacted and panicked. And certainly the evidence we could see seemed to support the, people's, the local people's case. We saw no bullet marks. We could see no bullet marks at all on any part of the school where the Americans were staying. The houses opposite were pockmarked with gashes and large holes from heavy caliber weapons. Seventeen Iraqis were dead. 
I asked Lieutenant Colonel Eric Nance of the 82nd Airborne whether he'd ever considered keeping his troops on the edge of Fallujah rather than occupying a school in a suburb. His reply was this, quotes, no, I never considered that at all. We want the Iraqis to build themselves up and you can't help them do that if you're sitting outside. We had no idea we weren't wanted. Well, that revealing phrase, we had no idea we weren't wanted, could be the epitaph for the whole occupation. The Americans and the British never took on board how mistrusted and how unpopular they were. And that brief, bloody US incursion into Fallujah contained all the ingredients for the tensions that subsequently led to full-scale armed resistance. More than a dozen Iraqis, as I say, lay dead because of clashes between Iraqi nationalism and what was at best American insensitivity and at worst a deliberate American drive to impose foreign control over a proud Islamic city. With hindsight, it was the spark that lit the Sunni insurgency. Now, there were other reasons why resistance grew among the Sunni population. Regular public statements by Bremer and other coalition officials that Sunnis had dominated Iraq under Saddam and therefore it was time for them to relinquish power this helped to create a feeling of collective punishment. Many Sunnis, after all, had actually opposed Saddam. The Iraqi Islamic Party, a largely Sunni party, had been banned under Saddam and many of its members sent to prison. Nor was Saddam's Ba'ath Party an exclusively Sunni affair. Many of its top people were Shia. So when coalition officials kept saying it was time to disempower Sunnis because of their links with the Ba'ath Party, it made all Sunnis think that they were victims and it turned many of them into active supporters of the resistance. Now the heavy-handed counterinsurgency tactics that I've just mentioned in Fallujah in April 2003, so early on in the occupation, were repeated throughout Western Iraq and of course far from reducing the insurgency, they helped to increase it. The independent research group, the Iraq Body Count, which collates and checks media and other reports of civilian deaths, calculated that occupation forces killed at least 266 civilians in the three weeks of April after Saddam's regime had collapsed. Over the next year, the number of civilian victims of US violence rose dramatically. Between April 2004 and March 2005, as they intensified their counterinsurgency campaigns, occupation forces killed 2,096 people, almost four times the previous year's total. Now, if you take this toll of roughly 2,600 civilians killed by the Americans in the first two years of the occupation and compare it with the number killed in that two-year period by car bombs and suicide attacks, by anti-occupation forces, the American killing is four times higher. Now we have an image now of terrorist car bombs as the main source of death in Iraq. And they were given prominent media coverage since most of them took place in Baghdad where reporters like myself and photographers had immediate access to these appalling scenes of carnage so as a result, readers of newspapers and TV viewers abroad had the impression that car bombs were the main danger for Iraqis. But in fact, away from the cameras, 
in the smaller Sunni towns and countryside, the Americans were taking far more lives. Now, if one assumes that every victim has at least clo five close family members, the degree of hatred and anger and the desire for revenge that the Americans caused becomes very clear. Now, in Shia areas, the occupation was equally unpopular. This went right against the pre-war assumptions of the Bush and Blair administrations. As preparations for the Iraq invasion accelerated throughout 2002, Washington assumed that the Shia would be very keen supporters. After all, they'd risen up against Saddam at the end of the first Gulf War and been brutally repressed. Now that a new opportunity for liberation was emerging 12 years later, Shias would surely welcome it, as Bush's officials believed. The second assumption in Washington, shared by the British here in London, was that Shia, Shias would eagerly participate in the transition to Iraq's first free administration once Saddam had been toppled. Their demographic majority would guarantee them the leading role in the new Iraqi parliament. And as a result, Shias would therefore be grateful to the coalition. But the U.S. assumptions were dramatically wrong on, three, on several counts. The decision makers here and in Washington failed to appreciate three crucial factors. Feelings of Iraqi nationalism were just as strong among Shia as among Sunnis, with the result that Shia support for liberation wouldn't guarantee support for occupation. Support would have to be earned. It couldn't be taken for granted. Secondly, the Americans and the British didn't see that while there was certainly a coincidence of view between them and the Shia leaders over the value of electoral democracy, this didn't translate into sheer majority backing for the secular politics of the exiles whom the Americans wanted to take over, people like Ahmed Chalabi. The dominant forces in the Shia community were Islamists, and they saw elections as a simple device for introducing their own sects, permanent rule. They were not well disposed, and still are not, towards political compromise let alone a system in which individual rights rather than sectarian solidarity has the upper hand. The third point ignored by Washington, not seen by Washington, was that the Shia Islamists were not united. There were three powerful trends among them, and as these three trends competed with each other for recognition and leadership in the Shia community, one major terrain for rivalry was bound to be the degree to which any group or leader was seen to be pro or anti-American. It would be hard for any Islamist leader to endorse a Western occupation and retain his credentials as a good Muslim. I mean, not just in Iraq, but throughout the Middle East, many Arabs turned to Islamist parties precisely because of their frustration with the long history of Western intervention and what they see as Western disregard for their own culture and Muslim traditions. So Iraqi Shia cooperation with the occupying authorities would at best be grudging, but it was much more likely that many Shias would choose to confront the occupation, especially if, as I say, Washington and London gave no signal that they would soon be withdrawing their forces and leaving Iraqis to run their own country. The rise of Moqtada al-Sadr's Mahdi army is eloquent proof of that. Now, the occupation is five years old will be in six weeks' time. During that time, 
the nature of Iraq's catastrophe has, of course, changed. This evening, I'm concentrating on the role of the United States and Britain in the first two years, because those were the crucial years which convinced the majority of Iraqis that the occupation must end quickly. It's quite true, of course, that the conflict in the last three years has become more complex. There's growing involvement by al-Qaeda militants, whose aim has been to kill the Shia civilians and stir up sectarian conflict. The bombing of the al-Asqariya shrine in Samara in February 2006 launched a wave of tit-for-tat sectarian murders. The Shia-dominated police have taken an increasing role in killing. There have been credible reports of death squads linked to the Ministry of the Interior. Conflicts have grown more intense with the two, within the two main Shia groups. There are rival militias. In addition to the Mahdi army of Muqtada al-Sadr, there's the Badr Brigade. And they've been battling for control of the main towns in the southeast of Iraq, including uh, Basra, of course, as well as the Shia districts of Baghdad. Among the Sunnis now, there are three armed movements. There are the Iraqi national resistance movements that I've been talking about, and they themselves are split into 12, at least 12 different smaller groups, localized groups. Secondly, there's al-Qaeda. And finally, there's a, a relatively new movement called the Awakening Movement, which began in towns in Anbar province, west of Baghdad, and now has spread to the provinces of Diyala and Nineveh. And the dividing line between these movements are quite fluid, and sometimes individual militants move from one group to another. Let me come now to my second challenge to the conventional wisdom, which concerns British policy. There's a fashionable view here in Britain that it was all the Americans' fault, the traditional British line. Britain's experts in the Foreign Office, so it is said, saw what an invasion was likely to lead to, but for various reasons, they either didn't convey their thinking to ministers, or if they did, the ministers didn't listen to them. Well, if only that were the case. But in the last few months, I've been interviewing a range of recently retired Foreign Office diplomats who were in office in 2002 and 2003. And they now feel freer to talk about what was happening at the time in Whitehall. They suggest that with very few exceptions, Britain's Arabists got things wrong. Some of them did foresee that the occupation would act as a magnet for Al-Qaeda, but they didn't foresee that there would be armed resistance by Iraqi nationalists. They didn't understand that the politicians who would fill the vacuum after Saddam's collapse would be Islamists, many of them linked to Iran. They didn't see clearly enough that the Bush-Blair dream of establishing a liberal, secular, stable, pro-Western bastion of democracy in Baghdad was nothing but a castle in the air. Let me just quote one British ambassador who was serving in the Middle East, who came back to London in January 2003 and talked to colleagues about the looming invasion. He told me recently, quotes, everyone was underprepared for the aftermath. To my shame, I was in the complacent camp. We underestimated the insurgency. I didn't hear anyone say it'll be a disaster and it'll all come unstuck. People felt it was a leap in the dark, but not that we were staring disaster in the face. Or take the words of Christopher Seeger, who took part in the pre-war discussions here in Whitehall, 
and then headed the British office in Baghdad after the invasion. He told me, quotes, a conventional view was that Iraq was one of the most Western-oriented of Arab states, with its British-educated urban and secular professionals. I don't think anyone in London appreciated how far Islamism had gone, not just among the Shia, but the Sunnis too. At least two former ministers who were in the cabinet at the time have revealed that the cabinet never saw any paper or position paper or analysis on the likely consequences of invading Iraq. And my own interviews with these foreign office diplomats produced no evidence that accurate analysis of the post-war situation even reached the foreign secretary. Now perhaps the people I talked to didn't have the full picture some members of the earlier generation of Foreign Office Arabists who'd already retired before the war have told me that they're slightly surprised to hear the apparent lack of expertise or courage among their successors. Others point out that the British had no embassy in Baghdad since 1991, which meant that by 2003, 12 years later, the core of British officials with any direct experience of Iraq was tiny, and of course, this is one of the great paradoxes that the two countries, the United States and Britain, that were most keen on invading Iraq were the two countries that knew least about it because they had had no embassies since 1991. France, Germany, and Russia all kept their embassies open until the eve of the invasion. And so it's not surprising that they had better information, better understanding of the Iraqi mood in Britain and America. Some Foreign Office officials complain that budget cuts have reduced the department's policy planning teams, so that crisis management has replaced strategic thinking. Others talk of the Downing Street monopoly of decision-making on big issues, which of course began with Margaret Thatcher. Others complain of a new creeping culture of civil service subservience. You no longer give a series of options. You just give the minister what he or she wants to hear so as not to raise difficulties. <clears throat> the only way to get the truth of what really happened in Whitehall in those months before the invasion is to have a full-scale inquiry. What did the government's experts really say and write? Why didn't they go out of Whitehall and ask experts, academic experts? What questions did ministers ask their officials? The government has to take the brave step of opening itself up to scrutiny because this is not the stuff for some LSE history PhD. Invading and occupying Iraq has been the greatest British foreign policy blunder since Suez. And if the mistake is not to be repeated, we need to know how it happened and we need to know that now. Finally, let me now turn to Iraq's future and what can be done to extricate the country from the appalling mess. The Bush administration appears to be trying to maintain a large contingent of US troops on an open-ended basis while continuing the current policy of training the new Iraqi National Army. And Bush, just a couple of days ago, announced that instead of reducing the extra troops that were sent in as part of the so-called surge, they will probably stay there so that by the end of his term in a year's time, there will be just as many American troops in Iraq as there are at the moment. Bush's argument is that this surge, the extra 27,000 US troops, has worked. 
It's certainly true that there has been a very welcome drop in the tax on Iraqi civilians over the last five months, though they are still incredibly high, averaging around 1,000 a month. The surge is not the only factor. There are a number of causes for that, for this drop in civilian deaths. One is the growing revulsion by Sunni tribal leaders in Iraq's western province of Anbar against the strategy and tactics of al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's performance is rejected by an increasing number of Sunni leaders. They don't like either its Salafi ideology, which sees all Shia as infidel, and they don't like its practical tactics, which are aimed through these appalling civilian atrocities at destabilizing Iraqi society and provoking civil war. So this increasing rejection, revulsion of the al-Qaeda philosophy and tactics applies not only to the Sunni leaders who are represented in the Iraqi parliament, it also applies to the tribal sheikhs and local imams in cities like Fallujah and Ramadi, who've always supported the Iraqi national resistance. They've now turned against al-Qaeda. But this trend, known as the awakening movement, began in Anbar long before the U.S. surge. The second factor in reducing casualties is the unilateral six-month ceasefire announced by the Shia militia leader, Moqtada al-Sadr. It's been in force now for five months and is being largely honored. The Mahdi army has not fought the Americans. The local gangs who seem to pay Moqtada uh, al-Sadr loyalty without necessarily being under his full command also seem to have reduced their reprisal attacks against Sunnis. Thirdly, the scope for sectarian murder has reduced. The killing rate in Baghdad has dropped dramatically since the beginning of 2007. In January last year, almost 1,000 bodies were found dumped in the streets of the city with signs of execution and before that torture. But by December, the number of these bodies being discovered was down to 120. So this is a huge change. How has it happened? Well, the sad fact is that most of Baghdad's mixed neighborhoods no longer exist. Minority communities, both Sunni and Shia, have fled to areas where their sect is in the majority and they naturally feel safer. And local vigilante groups now patrol the streets to keep out all strangers, with or without the help of U.S. troops. But as for the reduction in American troop casualties, one final point has to be made. Last year, the U.S. High Command increasingly turned to air power to confront the insurgency, and thereby reduce the risks to its own men and women in uniform. So while U.S. casualties have gone down sharply, deaths among Iraqi civilians caught up in fights between the U.S. and the insurgents have gone up. The independent monitoring group that I've already mentioned, the Iraq Body Count, calculates that in 2006, up to 623 innocent non-combatants were killed by U.S. airstrikes. Last year, the number killed was more than double that, at 1,326. And the victims of these air attacks last year included 88 children. Coming back to the surge policy, its most important aspect may not be the military side, but what it tells us about the shift 
in U.S. thinking. U.S. military commanders have realized, finally, that all politics are ultimately local. The initial U.S. strategy was to build up the Iraqi National Army and use it alongside U.S. troops to try to pacify the country. But it became painfully clear that the National Army is not really national. It doesn't represent Iraq's population. Some of its divisions are Kurdish. Others are overwhelmingly Shia. Very few Sunnis have joined or been encouraged by the Shia-led national government to join. And the senior U.S. commander, General David Petraeus, has realized that the only way to try to get peace in Sunni areas was to go down to the tribal level and work with local sheikhs, even with ones who used to sponsor attacks on U.S. troops. So this policy of paying and arming the local groups does make sense, even though, of course, it is highly risky. Critics point out that in building up these local Sunni militias to confront al-Qaeda, the U.S. Army may just be paying and arming people who will then, at a later stage, revert to attacking the Americans or even go on the offensive against the Shia militias. In other words, the Americans may just be stoking the fires of a future new civil war. But the localization of Iraqi politics reflects the increasing irrelevance of national politics since the occupation started. We often talk sneeringly, and I did at the beginning, about the green zone in Baghdad as a symbol of the Americans' isolation from the lives of ordinary Iraqis, which of course it is. But it is just as much a symbol of the Iraqi government's own isolation and impatience. After all, Iraqi ministers and most MPs also live in the green zone, spending their time haggling over legislation with very little relevance to most people's daily lives. Charles Tripp, historian of Iraq at SOAS, recently quoted one Iraqi as saying, the United States got rid of one Sudan only to replace him with 50. And Tripp went on to argue in a recent article, for many people, negotiating their way around and through these little Sudans with their militias, their detention centers, their local courts and taxes has become a fact of life. Some accept this as the price of increased security for their own community, neighborhood or street. Others who refuse to conform but know the price in blood for dissenting have fled. So what can be done? Even if civil peace were to break out in Iraq tomorrow, the country is now so traumatized and wounded that it will take a long time to heal. Two million people have gone abroad, many of them the country's most talented. A million and a half have been displaced inside Iraq after losing their homes. A whole generation of children has grown up in the shadow of fear, insecurity, and bereavement. At least 150,000 people were killed in the first three years of the occupation, according to the World Health Organization. Putting the country back together is going to take many, many years and will require a huge international effort. But the precondition has to be an end to the occupation and a complete withdrawal of all foreign troops. Only then will Iraqis feel they are the sovereign owners of their own country. The occupation is the elephant in the room. Some Iraqis spend their time fighting it. Others spend their time blaming it. A few Iraqis depend on it or hide behind it, but it distorts everything. 
I'm not arguing that the occupation can end tomorrow. Withdrawing 150,000 US troops with their arms and equipment will take at least six months. But there has to be an immediate announcement that this is the new US policy. At the same time, while the withdrawal gets underway, there has to be a national conference to which the widest possible cross-section of Iraqis is invited. It can't be just confined, confined to the members of the current Iraqi parliament, the ones in the green zone that I've been talking about. It must also include Sunni national resistance leaders, the tribal sheikhs of the awakening movement, the leaders of the Shia militias, others who should take part of Iraq's religious leaders, representatives of civil society, trade unions, women's groups, and so on. Either separately or as part of this conference, U.S. officials and commanders have to negotiate directly with the leaders of the armed groups about the scope and pace of the withdrawal. The goal, of course, being that it should take place within the framework of a ceasefire so that U.S. troops can leave without being attacked as they move out towards the sea via Kuwait or Turkey. In parallel with the national conference, there need to be a series of local conferences in provincial capitals and smaller towns with the aim of creating unity administrations for running local affairs while reconstruction proceeds. The current U.S. policy of encouraging provincial elections, I think, is disastrous under the majority, the winner-takes-all system that is uh, in place. It only creates more division. At this stage, the country is too fragile to, to, to afford yet more comp competition and division. There have to be local unity coalitions in provincial capitals, smaller towns, and, of course, at the national level. Now, who could convene? such a, a national conference. Ideally, of course, the United Nations and the Arab League. While it was underway, they would mobilize a massive financial package to rebuild Iraq. The United States and Britain, having the moral responsibility of starting this catastrophe, would be expected to contribute a substantial share to try and repair the damage their intervention has caused. I do not pretend, of course, that these arrangements would be easy to put together or they couldn't work smoothly. There will be a lot of killing still to come, but I see no other way to resolve the conflict. Take Iraq's principal neighbors, for example, Iran and Syria. They have no incentive at the moment to help to rebuild Iraq unless they know the United States is definitely leaving. As long as they have any doubt on that point, Iran and Syria will be justifiably concerned that any aid they give to Iraq will just be used to perpetuate the occupation. So Iraq's regional neighbors have already held several rounds of talks, but they will never produce any substantive results without a clear announcement by the US that it is leaving Iraq. This has to be, this end of the occupation has to be the precondition for regional cooperation. It also has to be the precondition for political reconciliation inside Iraq. The best chance for persuading Iraqis to look into the abyss and see that they cannot afford to tear their country apart is to make them realize their country's future is at last in their own hands. As long as foreigners take Iraq's decisions for them, there is no chance of progress. Thank you.
have time for some uh, questions and, and answers. So I think the, the way we'll proceed is I'll take maybe um, a few, and then uh, we'll have successive rounds. And I'll try to see hands up on top as well. So I'll, I'll be looking about. So uh, let's take a, three or four first to start. Yes, one. Sir? Yeah, go ahead. If you could just wait for the microphone for your questions. Just say who you, who you are, where you're from, and question. Brief, My name please. is Mohammed Al Khuzai. I am Iraqi. Uh, I am from the Iraqi National Foundation Council, which um, created perhaps in Iraq. I am a member of the Reconciliation Center group, which is the, the Arab League has done the 2005. Uh, I believe there is a way. Uh, to solve this problem. As you said, if we can feel that the American and the British, they live in the country, there is a lot of different uh, things can happen in Iraq. You could uh, start, I believe, with the people steal the money from Iraq that from the day of the invasion until now, put them back, uh, uh, put the money back, put the people uh, given the wrong advice to the, uh, to the U.S. and the uh, United Kingdom, put them on a trial for giving the wrong answer. Iraq is full of, uh, of weapon of mass destruction. Don't take me wrong. We are happy for Saddam to go. We are okay. happy. But now, you. you're taking the joys from the Iraqi people and destroying our country. The only way forward is, as you said, we got to feel Iraq is not going to be divided by the Sunnis, by the Shia and by the Kurds. Iraq being more than 11,000 years, one country. No occupying force in the world would divide it, but we need the assurance from you. And that is the way forward. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Are you connected with Sheikh Al Khalisi's group? Yes. Okay. okay. Let me um, just, shall I, t shall I take a couple okay. more? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Thank you very much. My name is Anna. I'm a student at LSE um, in the Human Rights Program. I just had a question. The, there's people in the U.S. government. Sorry, the mic's not working very well. I can't hear too well. Okay. Uh, there are people in the U.S. government and near to the U.S. government who make a lot of money um, because of the occupation. So, what are the incentives um, for the U.S. government to pull out if, it's, if there's so many private contractors and every level, and they all donate particularly to the Republican Party. So especially, I mean, I pray that it doesn't happen, but especially if there's the Republican victory in November, what would be the incentive, or how could you convince the U.S. to get out? Uh, let me get one question from up on top here. Oops. Mike. My name is Hilal Shalabi. I'm from Iran. I think what you said, hello, yeah. The situation, your idea that withdrawal should be the end of the now and will solve the problem. I don't agree so because Iraqi society was fragmented not after 2003. It was fragmented for the first five years of Saddam rule. There was already this connection between the Shia and the Sunni. 
The question it would take, it would be very risky and uh, risky to, to end the occupation, to end the winter, to withdraw all the multinational forces from Iran without reconciliation. The reconciliation process will not come uh, every day. Like our gentlemen say, we want revenge. The question Iraqi, they have at the moment, there is a lot of distrust between the Sunni and the Shia. Now, the question is, the best way is to, to what, the, what the Americans did, this initiative to encourage this facility to uh, initiative against the Qahid. The problem is, is actually the central government in Baghdad. What happened in the Shia? They've been oppressed for a long time, and unfortunately, the, the present government in Iran, they are thinking of not the victim, they are always to be the victim. Unless it takes a long time to have to come and run, would be a catastrophe, would be the beginning of a very atrocious civil war. Thank you. And um, do we have the, the mic here? Uh, Robert Wade. Oops. Okay, next round. A view was expressed um, in a letter, I think, yesterday uh, in response to your, article in the, your articles in The Guardian, um, which also um, echoed an, a longer article in the London Review of Books some months ago. According, the, according to these uh, writers, um, the chaos and destabilization that exists in Iraq perfectly suits the neoconservatives in the United States who want um, a weak central government in order to be able to maintain um, a virtually permanent American presence with uh, numerous bases in Iraq, regardless of the chaos and the destabilization, in order to defend um, their, the oil interests and actually promote uh, their own um, purposes in developing those interests. I wonder what Jonathan Steele thinks of that argument. Okay. Um, well, the first point, I think, uh, from you, sir, was <clears throat> to do with the money that's been stolen from Iraq and to the oil money that's gone. I mean, I think I implicitly dealt with that when I said that the financial sort of reconstruction of Iraq, if peace is restored, will have to be done internationally. But the U.S. and Britain have a very strong responsibility to pay a large share of it call it compensation if you like and that may well be the right description or it could just be money for reconstruction certainly they should pay back a lot of what they've taken out I, don't, I think you're absolutely right and I, I agree with you um, over here when you say what incentive is there for the US to pull out <coughs> well for the present administration not very much which is why or none at all which is why Bush wants to keep the same number of troops there as until he leaves office, because it would be admitting defeat if he pulls out. I, mean, I believe, as I've been arguing the whole evening, that defeat has already happened, and it's pretty clear to most people, and not to Bush, that he doesn't want to, uh, to face that fact, and he wants to dump the whole catastrophe on his successor, hopefully a Republican, as he sees it. Um, <coughs> but uh, so, so, you know, how do you do it? Well, you, you, you try and hope that public opinion or Bush's political opponents will force him to change his mind, or at least public opinion will force the, his successor to change policy. And I think one of the less encouraging things in recent months has been the way 
the US surge in Iran, which I've been talking about, may have had more effect in Washington than it's had in Baghdad. Um, the Democratic candidates now seem less uh, keen on calling for an immediate withdrawal, or at least fixing a timetable to withdrawal, than they were, you know, last spring. They, they seem to feel that uh, politically a bit dangerous to talk about withdrawal at this stage, which is really damaging. Um, so let's hope that uh, as these primaries continue and as the uh, campaign continues uh, through the autumn, anti-war people in the U.S. will get stronger and be able to put some pressure on the, um, on the likely um, <coughs> winner of the election. Uh, Mr. Chalabi at the top there in the gallery, um, I mean, I agree with everything you say. Iraqi society was indeed fragmented under Saddam, and he, to some extent, encouraged it, um, made it worse, and that it would be risky if there was a draw. But, I mean, everything's risky. I'm not trying to claim that that uh, my solution is, is, is a perfect solution because obviously if it was easy it would have been adopted long ago. Um, every prediction of the future in Iraq is, is a hazardous thing. You know, every potential solution contains a lot of downsides as well as upsides. Um, it's going to be a very, very complex process but I, I, as I say, I think the occupation is the elephant in the room. Without that distorting factor uh, you, you can't really hope to to, to, to make, uh, you know, without that going, you can't really hope to make progress. Certainly reconciliation is, is necessary, and I agree with you absolutely that the current government in Baghdad is, is, is resisting it. Um, but I think th there is a chance, it's a small chance, I, I, I agree, that, that when people realize, the Iraqis realize that the occupation is coming to an end and they've got to face the implications of that for good or ill, they, they, they may come together. They may not. You know, there may be civil war. But, uh, you know, the position under this occupation has been getting more and more dramatic and more and more terrible. More and more people are leaving the country. So something has to change for the better. I think, that, you know, it's not as though we're facing a status quo that is calm and okay and to talk about withdrawal is destabilizing. The present status quo is not stable. So we have to take a risk and if you like, the one big thing that's not been tried. And it's the one that is in conformity with the opinion polls of what Iraqis want, is to get out. The Americans to get out. All the opinion polls show that most Iraqis want the Americans to leave rapidly. Um, and I think we should listen to, listen to that. Um, finally, the question about chaos suits the neocons. Yes, it does. I mean, obviously, the neocons have changed their their uh, objectives, you know, the initial objective is the one that I say has been very clearly defeated, the idea of having a liberal, stable, secular, pro-Western bastion of democracy in the Middle East. That obviously, that is now not attainable. So, you know, they have to fall back on something else. Uh, and uh, That may be, you know, to have a very weak, constantly unstable, almost divided Iraq. And, uh, and that would be good to allow, um, I mean, one of the main purposes, of course, of this whole was to remove somebody who seemed to be a threat to Israel. That was very high on the neocon agenda. And uh, I suppose a weakened Iraq is also fairly high on the Israeli agenda and therefore that on the neocon agenda too. So, so they've fallen back on that as, as the sort of next best option. Rather than having a pro-Western uh, regime in Baghdad, they, they prefer to have a weak regime in Baghdad, whether or not it's pro-Western, anti-Western or, or whatever. Um, 
And so they want to stay there, but then the only way to turn them around is the same answer I gave to the earlier question, which is to hope that the public opinion in the United States will, will, will say to these people, look, it's, we don't want our boys and women in uniform to be you know, sacrificed to this neocon uh, agenda. Thank you. Uh, let's start with Robert here. Just here. <laughs> Just following up on your answer to the last question, um, I want to suggest that it is a bit um, misleading to think that the um, objective of staying in Iraq for a long time is a neocon objective, and that when the neocons are marginalized, then that um, objective will not be given importance. Remember that just recently Des Brown, our esteemed defense secretary, said that he thinks that British forces will stay in Afghanistan for decades, for decades, in order to prevent Afghanistan being used as a terrorist base for attacks against Britain. That is an extraordinarily stupid statement to make, but it does make sense if you consider that the high command in the US and the UK is playing a great game with Iraq and Afghanistan, just part of a territorial um, strategy to, put, to keep a large military presence along the southern underbelly of Russia and stretching to the borders of China. Um, and the question then is how to justify the, the, this military presence over the long term. And as has been said here, one of the ways to do that is to keep this area unstable. Uh, so the question is, what is your reaction to that argument? Thank you. Yeah. One right in the back corner. Yeah, you. Hi, Stephanie Ford from SOAS. I wanted to ask if um, the negotiations regarding the distribution of power between the central government and the provinces, and particularly the issue of Kirkuk, um, do you see any progress in the short term? So, a redistribution of power between the central the government and the local... Working out the relationship between the national government and then the provinces. Um, if, you know, yeah, yeah. Is there any progress in Kirkuk and that? Did you still have your question? All right. Yes, over here in the back corner. Hi, sir. My name is Judy, and I'm a student here at the LSC. I was wondering... Um, to begin with an anecdote that I've heard that many Iraqis, I'm over here, that um, many Iraqis in the country now feel increasingly compelled to learn Farsi because of increased Iranian intervention or involvement in the country. I was wondering what sort of role you think is the most appropriate for Iran to play in the reconstruction of Iraq and whether or not we can expect any changes in the next administration in terms of their policies towards Iran. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Surely Iraq, like other countries, had a dictatorship because it needed a dictatorship to hold it together. And if it's to be stable again, it would be because there's a new dictatorship. Is, it, is that a question or just 
<laughs> what? Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> um, well, the, the, the point about, um, yes, one of the sort of strategies is to keep Iraq unstable. Well, I've, I think I hinted already in the earlier answers that that, that is probably one of the neocon positions at the moment, and, and not just the neocons, as you pointed out, quoting from Des Brown. But um, it may well be that that's what they want to do, but it's a very, very costly and dangerous kind of tactic. Um, and, um, you know, what can I say? You know, I, I disagree with it, <laughs> um, and I think we should all argue against it. But uh, uh, Afghanistan is a sort of, I think, very similar to Iraq, although some reason the British seem to think, the British military seem to think that while Iraq has been a disaster, Afghanistan can still be a success. And it was amazing that General Sir Richard Dannett made these very good comments about pulling out of Iraq because you can't stay too long in a Muslim country because you lose the welcome very rapidly. And I would have thought that applied equally well to Afghanistan. And what Karzai is saying, it sounds as though that is the case. Um, but uh, they nevertheless continue to believe that we're serving some sort of purpose by keeping troops in Helmand province. Um, the question about distribution of powers between central government and local government, <coughs> I'm not sure that I can really answer that. I mean, a lot of it depends on legislation that's still going through the parliament. The whole issue of the sharing out of the oil revenues hasn't yet been finalized. Um, but increasingly, I think, because of the security um, issues, difficulties, that the provinces are becoming sort of more and more autonomous in a de facto way, whatever the legal framework is for distributing revenues and taxes and money and so on. And of course, a lot of the economies in these local areas are quite criminalized, particularly in Basra, where it's, a lot of it is to do with smuggling of oil. Um, and a lot of the oil doesn't get accounted for properly. Uh, and the mafias are contesting control over um, uh, over Basra are doing it because of the, uh, the criminal options and opportunities they have in, in, in smuggling. Um, the Farsi question um, and the US and Iran, well, those are two separate things. I mean, Iranian influence, I think, is always going to be limited in Iraq because uh, of the ethnic and linguistic differences. The fact that the Shia of southeastern Iraq, the Iraqis of southeastern Iraq are Shia so the Iranians is, is, is one commonality, but you know, there are lots of things that divide them. Um, as I say, ethnicity and uh, language for one thing, for two things. Um, so, you know, Iran is clearly trying to influence the situation and we don't really know what the, the mainstream thinking is, so just as we've been arguing about what the mainstream thinking here is in the West, we have even less idea what the mainstream thinking is in Tehran. I mean, that they're Obviously, some people there who they, they didn't want the invasion to happen. But once it happened, they then, some people argued that it's good for us to have the Americans bombed down in Iraq because then it's harder for them to shift their forces against Iran. So that's one reason for trying to help the militias and so on in, in Iraq to, to keep the Americans tied up and, uh, in a mess there. That's one argument, but I think the other argument, which was the same as the pre-invasion argument, is it's much better for us not to have the Americans at all in get them out of the region. Uh, it may be the stronger one, because clearly
clearly, if the Americans do leave, it will be rightly perceived as a defeat. It will reduce American influence in the region, not only in Iraq, but in the whole Arab Gulf. Um, I think Bush is now falling back on trying to create a huge sort of regional anti-Shia front. That's what his visit recently to the Gulf is all about, um, to try to sort of retain American influence by frightening people about Iran. I'm not sure that it was very successful, and most uh, of the Arab governments actually prefer collaboration, cooperation with Iran. They don't want to go into the war thinking there is some kind of isolation and containment policy and an image out has been to most of the Arab Gulf capitals uh, since he's been president, and so you know, there are kind of good contacts. Um, the US and Iran, well, again, we'll have to see who wins the election. Many people in the think tank sort of arena who's, who say, you know, we have to restore dialogue with Iran. But, I mean, it's, it's a peculiar thing. Like with U.S. relations with Cuba, there's a kind of psychological obsession there, almost a psychosis, because the U.S. was so humiliated at the Bay of Pigs in 1961 and then humiliated in 1979 in Tehran by the occupation and hostage-taking of the diplomats that they can't seem to you know, think rationally still this feeling of revenge uh, operating in Washington. Um, but uh, time is moving on and, uh, and maybe uh, the next administration will be more sensible and open a dialogue. Obviously, most European governments have already a dialogue with Iran, maybe a bit tense and, and uh, up and down, but at least, you know, we have embassies in Tehran and we have diplomatic relations, so let's hope the Americans will follow suit eventually. Um, you're rather cynical statement in it <laughs> about uh, dictatorship uh, well uh, it's, I think it's both cynical and, and a bit too sweeping you know in every country uh, <coughs> there are potential potential, potential for pluralism and democracy uh, not in the simple sort of Westminster term for, but for some kind of discussion peace and competition for, for power uh, it doesn't always have to be a dictatorship of trends after the monarchy was abolished and overthrown in 1958 in Iraq when civil society flowered briefly. All kinds of groups came to the surface and the army did of course come in and, and stop it. Um, and the, 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 not the army came in but the, the, um, the Ba'ath Party came in with the help of the Americans and overthrew that regime. Um, but uh, you know, I think um, you know you have you can't give up on the hope of pluralism and some kind of uh, development of um, open politics. Just to sort of assume dictatorship is a perpetual thing in certain cultures seems to me historically incorrect, as well as being morally a policy. Very good, thank you. I'm going to take a few a few more. If you can be very brief, we don't have too much time left, so I'll try to to call on as many of you as I can if you put your question very briefly. Yes, right up here. Thank you very much. Um, this, my, my name is Andy. I'm, I'm a student at LSE. And this uh, expands a little bit on the question that the lady asked about Iran. It has to do with, uh, from your perspective and your experiences in Iraq, if the U.S. troops do leave, do you foresee a possible power struggle emerging between Saudi Arabia and Iran for more power and control over Iraq in, in the greater Middle East and the region. And similarly, 
do you think that it was in Saudi Arabia's best interest to go in there and topple the Saddam regime? And do they have any, any role, I guess, in lobbying the British and U.S. government to, to I guess, prevent action in, in Iraq? Thank you. Yeah. Over here. If you run around, yeah. Do you think that there is any other future for Iraq apart from it being fractured very tiny? Apart from it being fractured uh, any time soon after the occupation? The fractured. Any, any future fractured. 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 Yeah. Okay. Can we... Oh, yeah. Okay, you, you've been raising your hand for a long time. Gary, got to make you run around with the mic. Do you think there's any hope for the Arab League to ever become more powerful and more effective in setting um, Arab affairs and also in repelling any future invasion or attack? Arab League. Yes, I mean, one of the contradictions of U.S. policy is, of course, what you, you just mentioned, the building this kind of, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of coalition of uh, like Sunni Arab, Arab countries against, uh, against Iran. And yet, of course, they're having to work, of course, with the, uh, and the, the Iraqi government, of course, is, um, is dominated by Shias. So, I mean, I, I'm just, I don't know how, how that worked, that inherent contradiction. I mean, I think um, al-Manaki, uh, I think was it um, Aminajad, maybe coming to Baghdad at the invitation, of course, of, of the um, Iraqi government. Hi, I'm Amy Clement Shaw, former student here at LSE. I've got two questions. Uh, the first is on the role of the UN. Uh, you said you thought uh, we needed a major international effort coordinated by the UN. Um, I think I'd agree that they're probably best placed to play that role. Um, but given that uh, they have institutionally been very reluctant to play a leadership role in Iraq over the last five years, how would you go about persuading them to, uh, to move into that kind of role? Secondly, on money, um, the one thing Iraq has really not lacked in the last five years is money. The scale of the American investment is probably unprecedented and the Iraqi budget is about $30 billion, which is bigger than what the US has spent on civilian reconstruction. If money isn't the issue, what role can Western outsiders play in Iraq? Thank you. Right. right down here in front. You talked about the, the mistakes of the government here in the administration of the US. But there was no opposition, and what, I mean, we need to try to listen what happened in the parliament here in the Congress in the U.S., in the media here in the U.S. I'm not talking about the Guardian, but there was little opposition by some very respected uh, papers like the New York Times, the, the Washington Post. Thank you. Um, I think one of the groups that doesn't get enough focus in Iraq is the Kurdis. 
And I'd be interested to see and hear what you, what you thought about how Kurdi claims for independence and for Kurdistan were compatible, or if indeed they were compatible, with a future unified Iraq, and what role they could play in Iraq's future. Thank you. One more up here. It's curious, there was a proposal put forth uh, a couple years back that Iraq be divided between the Kurds, the Shiites, and the Sunnis, either for continued governments or af afterwards. I was wondering what your reaction to that was. One final question. My name's Judith Cook. I'm from London. Uh, you, earlier on, you were... Um, looking at how uh, such um, a disaster might be um, prevented from reoccurring. I think um, one problem is that uh, maybe leaders do not take uh, rational decisions. And uh, in The Guardian, um, there was a report of a briefing at Downing Street um, at which uh, Charles Tripp, who you just mentioned, a professor from SOAS, was present. And his um, comment was that uh, Tony Blair didn't seem to be interested in hearing anything other than that uh, Saddam Hussein was uniquely evil. However, um, he did say that Jack Straw was more interested in hearing of the complexities. And Charles Tripp did give some warnings of um, the possible um, events that might occur in the aftermath of an invasion. Thank you. Okay. I think there's a lot on your plate, Dan. Yes, so what, was, what was the question? What was your actual question? How, how can, uh, how, how, um, can um, maybe what one might call irrational decisions uh, by leaders be um, um, prevented or... Um, leaders are uh, in there. <laughs> Okay, thank you. This is the state of Iraqi prisoners. Okay, go for it. Um, well, I'm standing mainly because people over here can't see. Um, is this the right side? Yes, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Well, I mean, in a way, they both are competing for influence, but I think any idea that they would invade the country and uh, try and take it over militarily, I think, is off the wall. Um, I mean, Saudi Arabia is actually playing a major role. Most of the al-Qaeda leadership that goes in comes from Saudi Arabia. You know, the U.S. great ally is, is funneling al-Qaeda people into... into um, into, the, into Iraq. I mean, the Americans admit that. Uh, you know, they, they give occasional figures of the nationality of the people they arrest who are said to be Al-Qaeda militants. I mean, having said that, one mustn't forget that the, the sort of basic foot soldiers, if you like, the infantry of Al-Qaeda is largely Iraqi. Uh, it, the, the leadership is, is, tends to be foreign Arabs, jihadis, who are mainly Saudi Arabian. Um, 
So I don't think there's any danger of, of, of a kind of military incursion by either of those countries. They both compete. I think um, as long as it's a Shia-led government, Iran will have more influence than Saudi Arabia. If it's, we get to the point of a genuine national coalition, unity government in, in Baghdad, then it, then it may be a different story because obviously the Sunnis do have some connection with Saudi Arabia, but not, not a great deal. I mean, these people are essentially Iraqi nationalists. They're not sort of surrogates for Saudi Arabia or for Iran. Um, somebody asked uh, about, is there any future for Iraq other than being fractured? Well, it is certainly very fractured at the moment, but I think if I can also simultaneously answer the question about uh, the proposal to divide Iraq, um, it would be wrong to assume that <coughs> this idea for a division of Iraq into sort of three simple groups, you know, the Shia, the Sunni and the Kurds, has majority support. It is being pushed very much by one of the Shia factions, the Supreme Council, which is linked to the Badr Brigade. They came up with the idea of uh, regional autonomy for the Shia provinces, but Moqtad al-Sadr, who is very powerful, is not in favor of that. He continues to call for a unified Iraq, which I think is a very hopeful sign. Um, one of the groups that's sort of the governor of, of Basra is a, from a group called Fadila. They want sort of autonomy for Basra province. Not, they're not so interested in the, the whole of the southeast because they're not so strong in the other cities except for Basra. So there are three different positions, sort of Basra <coughs> autonomy, southeast Iraq autonomy, or national unity. So three different positions within the Shia community. The Sunnis are not in favor of dividing it because um, most of the oil is not in the Sunni areas, so they would be saying goodbye to the oil if they consented to a division, formal division of Iraq. The Kurds, and perhaps I can come on to the Kurdish issue at this point, um, play a double game. I mean, on the one hand, they want to preserve their autonomy uh, with a view at some future stage of becoming independent, on the other hand, they want to keep their hand in the Baghdad government in order to uh, try and get hold of the city of Kirkuk and other parts of uh, Iraq that are not yet under Kurdistan rule. So they, they play both games. They, they sort of claim to be part of loyal parts of the Baghdad government, even as they resist flying the national flag of Iraq anywhere in Kurdistan. They refuse to fly the Iraqi national flag. Um, but I don't think they're likely to become independent because nobody except the Kurds wants independence. The Turks clearly don't want it. The Iranians don't want it. The Syrians don't want it. The Americans don't want it. Um, so they're going to have a hard time getting independence. Um, coming back to the Arab League question, I mean, they, of course they are historically incredibly feeble and impotent and uh, disappointing, but... <coughs> You know, they have come up with some initiatives and uh, I think if the UN uh, helped to coordinate the kind of national conference that I'm advocating, I think the Arab League would probably come in under the wing of the UN and play quite a major role because of their obvious interest and links with the area. Um, I suppose this question about the UN is pretty much the same thing. I mean, it's difficult because of course the Two of the five veto-carrying powers in the UN are Britain and 
United States, and, and they are leery of um, accepting that the whole thing has been a disaster, so they may not be very willing to, to agree to some kind of UN sort of handing the thing over in some way to the UN. But again, you know, public opinion is the only way to try and pressure them to change their minds. Um, money, somebody said, you know, will there be enough money? I think that was the question in broad terms. Um, in a way, money is not the main issue at this stage. The main issue is political stability based on political reconciliation. And... Uh, and uh, these kind of local and national coalitions that I'm talking about, the main international effort has to be now to promote this reconciliation <clears throat> and get the right politics. The money will follow the politics, I think. It's not the other way around. Um, but obviously because the infrastructure is so wretched, because there's been so much destruction, there will be an enormous amount of money will be necessary. Um, but as I say, I think that's the secondary thing. Um, the um, Charles Tripp thing, you were quoting extensive passages of my book, which is on sale at £10 outside of massive discount. Thank you. <laughs> um, how can it be prevented again? I don't know. You know, there is, uh, particularly under Blair, there was a culture of saying, you know, it's not about experts, it's about morality. You know, if you think it's right and you feel it's right, and maybe God tells you right, I'm not sure quite what role God played in pre-war discussions, but um, you know, then it's all right. Uh, experts are just a sort of diversion. They make the matter too complicated and they're lily-livered and all the rest of it. Um, and your question about Iraqi prisoners, was that in, in US prisons or British prisons? Well, I mean, the picture presumably speaks for itself. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I think you make my case much more eloquently than I can and much more convincingly because you come from Iraq. Thank you. Okay. On that, the, for those who are invited to the reception, it's in the senior common room. That's the old building on the fifth floor. And 
I would like to thank you all for coming out and for your fabulous questions. And most of all, let's collectively thank Jonathan Steele.